Our Bible reading this morning is taken from Titus chapter 2, and we're going to read the first uh, six verses. Titus chapter 2 and verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Amen. And we know God will bless the reading of his own inspired word. Now, if you remember back to our last study in Titus 2, we noticed the connection between doctrine and uh, practice. We kind of stood back from the passage and we noticed the emphasis that Paul uh, puts on teaching doctrine as the catalyst for change, as the means of bringing about the godliness and the Christ-likeness uh, in the lives of the believers on the island of Crete. So he tells Timothy in chapter 2 and verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. You see, the problem on the island of Crete was that false prophets had come in to the churches and were teaching things that they ought not to teach, was, which was actually corrupting the behaviour of the believers in the churches. If you look back to chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. It seems that even family life itself was being unsettled and undermined by this false doctrine that was being spewed forth from these false teachers. Now in chapter 2, Paul gives specific instructions to five different groups seeking to correct the corrupting influence of those false teachers. He speaks to older men, he speaks to older women, to younger women, to younger men, and to bond servants or slaves. Now, it's, it's not an exhaustive list of the behaviour that Paul expects from Christians in these various groups, but rather he is correcting aspects of the behaviour of these Christians on the island of Crete. He's directing it specifically to them. Uh, behaviour that had been corrupted by these false teachers that had come into their midst. Now this morning I want to look at the first four groups, the older men, the older women, the younger women and the younger men. And we'll leave the last group, uh, bond servants, to next week. So first of all this morning, let's look at what Paul tells Titus he is to say uh, to the older men. Look at verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now that term, older men, is used twice in the New Testament. It's used of Zechariah, who remember when he was told of John the Baptist's impending birth, said, I am an old man, that's the word, and my wife is advanced in years. Paul uses it himself, of himself, in Philemon in verse 9, and scholars reckon that he, at that stage, was in his early 60s. 
However, in classical Greek, and I find this quite sobering, it's used for anyone over the age of 50. It, it is startling and shocking for me to know that I've been put into that uh, group of older men, that I'm classified as an older man. And to this group then, Paul gives instructions about their outward decorum and their inward disposition, their outward decorum. He says three things about these older men. They are to be sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled. Sober-minded. Its root uh, means uh, free from intoxication, but just like the word sober in the English language means more than free from intoxication, Uh, It means serious-minded, it means level-headed, it can mean matter-of-fact. So the word in uh, the ancient world meant more than free from intoxication. It meant someone who was in control of their appetites, who was moderate in their appetites, that avoids extravagance and excess, that he has his appetites under control. The modern picture of the beer-swilling, foul-mouthed, compulsive womanizer was anathema to Paul and a total contradiction of his understanding of biblical masculinity. He is sober-minded. He is dignified. The NIV says worthy of respect. The authorised version says grave. He's not a frivolous trivial or superficial individual he has a a dignity he carries himself with dignity he inspires confidence people look to him young people look to him and see him as a solid man as a solid christian he's not one of these middle-aged balding men that grow ponytails or wrinkly men who put earrings in in order to make themselves look younger or pot-bellied men who pour themselves into uh, leather trousers to try and look trendy but just look ridiculous. These are men worthy of respect, dignified men. And then thirdly, they are self-controlled. The authorised version uses the word temperate, Again, referring to bodily appetites, but in this context, specifically, I think, to sexual appetites. It's interesting that Paul tells the older men to be self-controlled. He tells the younger women to be self-controlled. He tells the younger men to be self-controlled. In fact, that's the only thing he says to the younger men, but not the older women. And he seems to be indicating in that that sexual temptation and the need for sexual purity will always be a battle that man will wrestle with to the day he dies. That older men too need to discipline themselves and avoid uh, temptation that they must never drop their guard and never lose self-discipline when it comes to sexual temptation. So the older men are to be sober-minded, dignified and self-controlled. Inwardly, Paul says, they are to be characterised by faith, hope and steadfastness. They are to be sound in the faith, Paul tells Titus. That they are to know the faith, that they are to be growing in the faith, that they are to have a grasp of the faith. They need to know what it means to be a Christian. You know, the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 5 writes to uh, his readers and he says, you know, there are other things I need to tell you. He says, but you're not ready for them. 
He says, uh, you should be on solid meat, but you're still um, on, on milk. He says, you're still on an infant's diet. He says, I can't tell you these things because you're not ready for these things. In other words, you haven't grown up in your faith. You haven't developed in your faith. You haven't matured in your faith. I remember on one occasion being asked to speak at a youth fellowship. And so I, I took a talk that I thought was particularly suitable to young people, probably more illustrations than I would normally use. I wore my jeans. I was younger then, an open neck shirt. Um, and I, I went to this meeting to discover they were all in their 60s and 70s. And they, they were the youth fellowship. And they still continued to be the youth fellowship that they had never grown up. And they were still singing the same songs and looking for the same talks that they had as young people. They hadn't progressed in their faith. But Paul tells Titus that older men are to be sound in their faith. They are to have an understanding and a grasp of the deeper things of God. Sound in faith, in love. There is a danger, you see, that the older you become, the more cantankerous, grumpy and uh, miserable you become. You know, we have that expression, grumpy old men. Well, there are lots of grumpy old Christians. It's a wonderful thing to see an older person who is gracious and loving and kind. An older man is to be distinguished by love. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not pride, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. I love the way that J.B. Phillips translates that line in 1 Corinthians 13, it is not easily angered. He, he translates it, uh, love is not touching, that he is to be mellow and gentle, warm and approachable, helpful and practical. You see, one of the things is that you, as you grow old, you become less patient with people and you do become grumpy. But, but Paul says that's not the way it should be. You are to be sound in faith and in love and in steadfastness. The NIV says perseverance. You know that triad of graces in the New Testament, faith, hope and love, that may be what is being alluded to here because steadfastness is the result of hope. If we are looking forward to a city whose builder is and maker is God, if we are laying up treasures in heaven, if we are looking forward to the reward that will come, then we persevere. The more hope we have, the more steadfastness, the more perseverance we will manifest. Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 4, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, and he says, We do not lose heart, although outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That that dogged perseverance and steadfastness ought to manifest itself, particularly in the older men. So outwardly, uh, the older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Inwardly, they are to be sound in faith, in love and steadfastness. That's the older men. What a challenge that is to all of us who are over 50. That's the older men. Secondly, let's consider the uh, older women in verse 3. 
Older women likewise are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Notice three things uh, that Paul tells Titus about these older women. First of all, notice the holiness she must manifest. They are to be reverent in the way that they live, reverent in behaviour. The authorised version says, behaviour that becometh holiness. This is an unusual word, and it's the only place it appears in all of the New Testament, and it literally means to be priest-like. In other words, these older women were to live like priests. Now, they weren't to function like priests, but they were to um, be reminiscent of priests. Now, a priest was somebody who was called and set aside by God to an office, And he was distinguished in that calling by the vestments that he wore. In other words, his inward calling manifested itself outwardly. And Paul seems to be writing to these these older women and he's saying, look, you must dress in a way that's appropriate for the godliness that you profess, uh, in a way that is appropriate to the calling that you have received. You have a a good illustration of that in 1 Timothy 2 in verse 9. Where Paul says, Likewise also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness. That the godliness that she um, has manifests itself outwardly in in the very way that she dresses. It's just plain wrong for a woman who is professing to love God to dress in a way that is inappropriate to that profession. So the holiness she must manifest, that outwardly she um, manifests, even in her dress, the godliness that she has inwardly. Secondly, notice the temptations she must avoid. Paul speaks of two vices, of two sins that the older women in Crete were particularly vulnerable to. I don't think this applies to all older women. He's addressing particularly the women in Crete. And he encourages them not to be slanderers and not to be slaves to much wine. Two temptations which the older women on the island of Crete were susceptible to. He says, first of all, they must avoid slandering. The authorised version says false accusers. There's something in us that at times thinks the worst of other people. And there's a temptation to spread that negative thinking around. It's not idle chatter that Paul is forbidding, but rather vicious delight in bringing trouble on other people and running them down in the eyes of other people. It's interesting that this Greek word is used 34 times in the New Testament of Satan because he is the false accuser par excellence. And to gossip maliciously is nothing less than to do the devil's work. You see, one of the difficulties that we have is that once our words are spoken, they cannot be withdrawn. It's a bit like the children's talk where you squeeze out a tube of toothpaste and then you invite the children to put the toothpaste back in the tube. It can't be done. Once our words are spoken, they are out there and they can't be 
withdrawn. And as John Bunyan says, rumours can ruin a man's reputation and break a man's heart. I heard of a woman who went to her pastor and said she was convicted of this particular sin of, of gossiping. And she said to the pastor, I want to lay my tongue on the altar. To which the pastor replied, I'm not sure there's an altar big enough. We need to be careful about what we say and the uh, rumours that we pass on. You know, Socrates, the Greek philosopher, spoke of that triple Filter, truth, goodness, and usefulness. Is it truthful? Is it good? Is it useful? Paul speaks of widows going from house to house in 1 Timothy 5, who are gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to say. So these are the temptations that older women, the older woman in Crete, needed to avoid. Slander. Secondly, a dependence on alcohol. He says of the older women that Titus is to teach them not to be slanderers or slaves to much wine. Now, Paul, are you serious? That godly Christian women like their drink. Christian women who don't just like a wee drink, but love uh, like much drink. You can't be serious, Paul. What an insult to women. But you see, in a culture where wine was accepted as a safe alternative to disease-ridden, contaminated water, there was a very real danger that alcohol could be abused. Given also the propensity of the Cretan people to excess, drink, strong drink, was a strong temptation. But why, you may ask, does he specifically address this issue to the older woman? Well, I, I think there is a, a danger with older women that when the children have grown up and left home, that they suffer from the empty nest syndrome, uh, that they have more time on their hands and that they can seek to dull the emptiness that they have experienced in the children moving away from them with alcohol or other things. Now, of course, in a, an evangelical culture that tends to frown on alcohol, the drinking might be, a less, might be less of a temptation for us. But disappointment can manifest itself in bitterness and moroseness, perhaps in an addiction to tranquilizers or painkillers or an obsessively materialistic spirit. You see, hope deferred makes the heart sick, says Proverbs. And the, the older woman thinks of her children. I give up everything for you. I, I sacrificed everything for you. I gave my, I give birth to you. I, I nursed you. And now you can't even call. And then they look back in their life and they say, what sacrifices I've made, what opportunities I've, I've missed. And disappointment then can give way to stimulants in order to mask the pain. These are the two temptations that older women must avoid. Slander and this dependence upon alcohol. Temptations that perhaps spring from too much time on your hands. So the older woman, the holiness she must manifest, the temptation she must avoid, and then the instruction she must give. Look at verses 3 and 4. They are to teach, this is the older woman, they are to teach what is good and so train the younger woman to love their husbands. 
Although women are prohibited from teaching formally in mixed congregations, they are not only permitted but encouraged to teach other women, children, and they are permitted to teach other men informally because Priscilla and Aquila um, taught Apollos the word of God more perfectly. And Paul, warning of the temptations to older women because perhaps of this time that they have on their hands with the children away from the home, he encourages them to put their time to good use and to teach younger women. Don't sit back and gossip, he says. Don't take the alcohol, he says, to mark your disappointment. But get out there and do something useful. Use your domestic skills. Use your biblical knowledge to encourage the younger woman. Do you remember how you struggled with the children when when you were young? Do you remember the, the tears that you shed and the depression that you, you, you suffered and how you just wanted somebody to come along and encourage you and put their arm around you and tell you that it's not that bad. Well, all that experience that you've gathered, put it to good use and teach the younger woman. That's a repeated medicine throughout the Bible, that it's the standing pool that stagnates with Moss and algae, but it's the running stream that filters as it flows. You remember Elijah when he reached that, as one commentator says, the place of panic-stricken paralysis in his faith and prayed that he might die. The Lord came to him and told him to go and anoint Haziel king over Amram, Jehu king over Israel, and Elisha to succeed you as prophet. He gave him a job to do. He put his Feet back in the pathway of obedience. And so Paul tells these women negatively not to be gossips, not to use this extra time that they have to indulge the flesh and indulge uh, in much wine, but to put their experience to good use and to teach the younger women. So his instruction to older women is this, the holiness that they must manifest, that outwardly, They are to reflect the godliness that they have inwardly. The temptations they they must avoid. Slander and alcohol, probably specific temptations to these older women on the island of Crete, but temptations nevertheless. The instruction she must give that they are to teach younger women. Why not uh, invest, you older ladies, why not invest in in young, the lives of younger women and to be deliberate about them and, and, and come and minister them to them in practical ways. That's what Paul is asking Titus to teach. The older men, the older women, and then the younger women. Look at verses 4 and 5. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Paul not only instructs Titus what he is to teach, but he gives instruction to the older women on what they are to teach the younger women. And the um, instruction focuses very much on the home. He speaks of the loyalty to the home. He says in verse 4, And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Do you notice that? Train them to love. 
So Paul isn't speaking about sentimentality. He's not speaking about infatuation. He's not even speaking about physical attraction. That's how the world thinks of love. Bells and whistles. But Paul encourages the older woman to train the younger woman to love their husbands and children. That it can be learnt. Uh, a young girl came to me on one occasion. She had been married for six weeks and she said to me, um, I'm leaving my husband. She says, um, I no longer love him. But she wasn't speaking about love. She was speaking about infatuation. She was speaking about tingles in the fingers and shivers up the spine. Infatuation may take you to the altar, but it will not sustain a, a, a marriage. That you can learn to love. That love is more than a feeling. You remember Paul says to husbands in Ephesians chapter 5. He says husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. If, if love was just a feeling. How could Paul command husbands to love their wives? It's more than a feeling. It's, it's a commitment. And in Crete in a sexually permissive culture. These older women were to teach the younger one women Um, To train them how to love their husbands and their children. That there was this loyalty, this commitment, this dedication to the home. The loyalty to the home. The priority of the home. He says in verse 5 that the young women are to be taught to be working at home and kind. Working at home. The authorised version says keepers at home. Now that doesn't mean kept at home. J.B. Phillips translates it as a home lover. That her priority is her home. He doesn't mean that you must never work outside the home. We know from Proverbs 31 that the uh, virtuous woman there was entrepreneurial and she had all kinds of schemes to make money outside the home, buying and selling fields, etc., We know that Priscilla and Lydia worked outside the home. But their work outside the home was second to their commitment to the home. The home was their first and was to be their first priority. I remember reading a little pamphlet by Walt Chantry years ago entitled The High Calling of Motherhood. That actually to be a wife and a mother is is a high calling. And if greatness in the eyes of the world is to be measured by academic achievement or by having a number of people working under you or to be at the top of your career, then many Christian women are, are not successful. But if success in the Christian sphere is to be measured in having a home where children are reared in a godly environment... Uh, in a home where they are loved and where their father is loved. That's a wonderful thing. And that is true success. That you're investing in your children for eternity. That word kind or the authorised version says good. I, I think means that she's hospitable. That she welcomes others into her home. Her priority is to be her home. Her loyalty To the home, her priority for the home. And then thirdly and most controversially, the authority in the home. Look at what Paul says there in verse 5. Submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. 
I, some people come and say that uh, the submission that's required of women in the home and in the church in the New Testament was a cultural thing. That's, that's rubbish. In 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11, Paul argues not from culture but from creation, that it's a creation thing. In fact, he says that it's an intensely spiritual thing. He says in Ephesians 2, in Ephesians 5, verse 22, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. Or Colossians 3, and verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. That God has constituted the home with the husband as the head. And you say, well, that's not fair. But remember, the Bible tells us that God is the head of Christ. Does that demean Christ in any, in any way? Does that rob him of his inherent worth? Not at all. It's just in redemptive history that the Father and the Son have different roles. And God has given the role of headship in the home to the husband. Now, maybe some of you young women are saying, um, well, I don't want to be subject um, to any man. I'm not going to be subject to my husband. Well, I have good news for you. You don't have to. Just don't get married. But if you want to fulfill God's design for the home and God's design for you, you will submit to your husband. And added to that, remember the, the biblical requirement for the husband in Ephesians chapter 5 is to Love his wife as Christ loved the church. That he is to love her to death. And I would suggest to you that if you find a, a husband that loves you in that way, you'll have little trouble submitting to him. So don't settle, the younger girls. Don't, don't settle for a spiritual wimp. Get a, a man who's going to love you as God intended as Christ loved the church. And then I would suggest to you that you would have very little trouble submitting to him. So here is Paul's advice to younger women, the loyalty they are to have uh, to the home, the priority they ought to have for the home, and then the authority in the home that they are sub to submit to their husbands. So we have older men, Older women, younger women, and finally, younger men. Look at verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Now, we're told that younger men have a one-track mind. Well, here Paul gives a one-track piece of advice. He says, be self-controlled. And as I said earlier, in that context, in this context, he's speaking of our sexual appetites. I, I, there would have been a lot of advice that he could have given to younger men, but he gives them one piece of advice. And he says, be self-controlled. These sexual appetites, bodily appetites, are very strong in all men, but they are a particular problem for young men. Before they're married. Paul urged Timothy to flee from youthful lusts. He says to the Corinthians. It is better for a young man to marry. Than to burn with passion. Men are very easily aroused. By sight, by thought, by touch. 
and they can quite quickly burn with passion. That sexual desires within them are a, a tinderbox waiting to be ignited. But Paul says you are to be self-controlled. That it's possible to control these strong inward passions. He says himself, I buffet my body and I make it my slave. Lest after I've preached to others, I myself should not be disqualified from the prize. That Paul himself engaged in rigorous self-discipline to conquer these appetites. So in all the advice that he gives to the older men and to the older women and to the young younger women, he gives one piece of advice to the younger men. Be self-controlled. Be sexually pure. Struggle and battle to bring these lusts under control. Well, you might say, well, how do I do that? Well, let me give you three pieces of advice. First of all, starve the flesh. Starve the flesh. Don't feed the flesh. Don't feed it with provocative images on television or in books or magazines or on the internet. Pornography is addictive. And and pornography is hungry that it, it starts with mild pornography and then you find yourself getting sucked in deeper and deeper into craving for more uh, hard kind of of images to satisfy your lust well starve the flesh cut off those things that uh, give you access to those kind of images secondly not only starve the flesh but occupy the flesh the devil finds work for idle hands. So when you find yourself alone for prolonged periods of time, that's, that's where the danger sets in. When you're on your own, away from watching eyes. So you've got to occupy the flesh. You've got to do things. Get out there and do something. Uh, help people, encourage people, speak to people. Uh, develop a hobby, uh, an interest in sports, something else that will divert your mind away from those unwholesome things. So starve the flesh, occupy the flesh, or satisfy the flesh. But satisfy the flesh in the way that God intended in marriage. Paul says it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And maybe if this is an ongoing struggle with yourself, what you need to do is get married so that you can find a, a legitimate outlet for the expression of that desire in a way that is honouring and glorifying to God. Can I just say to the ladies of the church, if this is every young man's battle, indeed every man's battle, then there is a responsibility upon you to act responsibly and address modestly. If, if men are aroused through the eye gate, through what they see, then you must dress, as we were thinking earlier, in a way that is appropriate to godliness. Men have a, enough to battle with in the world without having to do those same battles in church. And I'm not saying to the younger women or to the older women that you must dress in a, 
a, a frumpy, unfashionable way. What I'm saying is that you need to dress modestly so that you don't become a stumbling block to the younger men in our congregation. So Paul gives instructions to older men, their outward decorum and their inward disposition, to older women, the holiness that they must manifest, the temptations that they must avoid, slander and alcohol, and the instruction that she must give, that she must turn her energy um, positively into teaching the younger women. Younger women, their loyalty to the home, the priority for the home, and they need to remember the authority in the home. Younger men, one thing, this one thing Paul says to them, control yourself and your sexual appetites. Amen.